Welcome to Real Food, Real Conversations with Sophia DeSantis, where we focus on finding our happy balance between salad and fries. Welcome back to the Real Food, Real Conversations podcast. This is episode 98, and I'm really, really excited for my guest to stay. Um, We're going to talk about menopause. Um, So if you're a guy, you still want to listen because you might have somebody in your life that you need to support going through this, and that is so important. Um, And actually specifically talk about, too, like diet and menopause. My guest today is Dr. Anna, and she is super just triple board certified, just has all the stuff that she is going to share with us today. And I cannot wait. Welcome, Dr. Anna. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm excited to be here with you. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself, because when I was writing this, I was like, wow, yeah, you, she's done a lot and she has a lot, <laughs> a lot to share. I do. I, um, I have loved women's medicine since a young age. My mom was um, struggled with diabetes and heart disease from an early age. And I learned very quickly that most of the research her care was based on was done on men. And so of course, you know, that really, that really drove me into women's health. And, um, and I love it. I, I, practiced in a rural area um, of Southeast Georgia for over 21 years because I was National Health Service Corps. And that was part of my payback to um, work for three years in an underserved area. And from that, you know, having my solo practice, being the first woman specialist soloist in a small county called McIntosh, just I've learned so much, helping my patients in economical ways and in very holistic ways. And also then I had my own mess early menopause at age 39 with infertility and uh, struggled with um, struggled with all the symptoms, weight gain, hair loss, mood swings, irritability, you know, hot flashes, insomnia. I mean, the list goes on. So I had my doctor's bag and I trained at one of the best institutions in the world, Emory University, and my doctor's bag was empty. And that really did lead me on a journey around the world you know, where I did not discriminate on healing, healing modalities. And I learned so much from indigenous healers and some of the world's leading scientists. And so that's brought me full circle to be doing what I'm doing and helping people through menopause as a result of that journey. Sophia, it was really beautiful because at one point I was told I would never be able to conceive. And the only option I had was egg donation. Well, few years later, I naturally conceived a beautiful, healthy girl. And her name is Ava Marie. So now I'm 55 with a 14 year old. (laughs) Um, I am getting chills. Okay, I literally have goosebumps right now. So I don't know how much of my story, you know, but I went through four years of infertility to have my first son. Um, I had my first miscarriage at year at when I like a week before my 30th birthday. Um, And we went through if I look back at the end, I went through three rounds of IUI, four rounds of IVF surgery. Um, I saw all the people finally, um, met a holistic nutritionist who I was, you know, you've been there, you pretty much grasp at all the straws whatsoever. Um, I too was told I had old eggs. And after my third round of IVF was told that I should go to egg donation. Mm -hmm. Um, but something inside of me said, no, Um, so I went through some, about six months with this holistic nutritionist and all the things and started to feel different. And we decided to try one more time. And I was able, the the fourth IVF from the very first blood draw that I had, 
the doctor personally called me and he's like, something's different. And like, what are you talking about? He goes, I just want you to know that something is different. I don't know. I'm just telling you something's different. Um, at my egg retrieval, I had 16 eggs and my first three rounds of IVF in total, I had five total for all three. Wow. He literally left me on the operating table and went outside to tell my husband eggs were falling out of me. Um, wow. I have goosebumps. It, I had, yeah. I had my first day five transfer. My other transfers were all day three because my blastocysts were like just not good. Um, mm-hmm. And that is how I conceived my first son. And then I naturally had two more kids after that. Um, and I too went into early onset menopause. I am turning 45 in July. I have been done with menopause. I mean, po- I'm post-menopausal now for probably two to three years. Um, my third baby was born when I was 38. And I, I, my OBGYN just assumed that I was going through postpartum when in fact I was in perimenopause um, after I had him. And I went through menopause fast and furious. Like by the time I want to say I was, I think I was like 41, 42 when I was completely like period free for over a year. Um, and I went through all the same things, uh, gnarly hot flashes. Mm-hmm. I finally went to my doctor when my anxiety attacks were so bad. I was crying like multiple times a day. Um, I went through about, she put me on anti-anxiety meds because she's like, I, I need to gear a mess. Um, but after a month, I, the side effects were just too much for me. I, the, the side effects were worse than what I was feeling great, but my side effects were not worth it. So I actually started seeing a holistic, um, uh, naturopathic um, functional medicine doc who I still see today. And with the help of her and just really focusing on yoga, um, meditation, um, a lot of things, I am, I can say that I'm, you know, doing really well now. Um, But I I literally have goosebumps because- Oh my gosh, you're the first story. It's crazy. Like how there, I mean, just to hear your story and how similar it is to mine. Mm-hmm. And how that's very unique. Like here we are two, two, what do you call it? Needles in a haystack, right? Yeah. Really? It's so rare. And that you, you know, that you were able to find a solution, right? The, how food is medicine, how food is medicine. It's, it's so true. And so that early, you know, like, and I'm thinking about your story and what you shared, and I thank you for sharing this with me, us. Uh, and I, I wonder too, like 41, that's so, I mean, that's, that is so young, like what else, you know, what yes. other things are going on? How can we reignite the adrenals? Well, again, you're a, a mom with three youngsters at home. That's stress. Stress will cause some decline of ovarian reserve and ovarian function decline in our reproductive hormones for sure. That, that, that it's been now this long, four or five years. So it, your thyroid, was that looked at, you know, pituitary function, all of those things that can come into play when kind of, I would say we still, you know, like for me, it's, it's interesting because you always want to get to the underlying causes, the underlying issues. A hundred percent. And that's why, um, when I started working with my functional medicine doc, like that was like the things, I mean, every Mm -hmm. time I meet with her every, you know, two months now, and my, my adrenals are definitely my weakness and have always been. And even when I went through was going, dealing with that holistic nutritionist back in the day, like that's kind of what was coming up back then. And totally, I definitely think, and the, the, also the thing is here that I feel like talking about is, is that while Western, I believe in Western medicine big time, I also believe in alternatives. And, you know, I think that it's that opening up of our mind of 
just, it's not always a pill. It's not always. And while I, I needed those anxiety pills to just to get myself in check because I was a mess. It doesn't have to be this lifelong band-aid. Like it's a great start, but for a lot of people, I feel that other change, like you said, what is the root of the problem? Take this for now until we can level you off, but then let's dig deeper. And that's kind of what my experience has been as well. Um, just looking at different types, like you said, you traveled so many places because I think here we're in the United States, we, we are so short minded in what is out there. And there's so much more to this world and so many other things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think we've used, um, what should be first line medicine, we've used it after nothing else works, right? After yes. this pill, that pill, that intervention, this, you know, we, it, honestly, I would say that, you know, I, I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in the prime years of my life to essentially be a pimp for big pharma. And I use pharma, I still use pharma today, right? I recommend it for patients in different cases. Sometimes it's that short time, that crutch, right? Yes. It, it, almost all the time almost all the time, because we have to get to the underlying issue that's causing the imbalance. There's always something, there's always something else, lifestyle, you know, nutrition, um, metabolism, food sensitivities, toxins, toxic disruptors, mold toxins. I mean, the heavy metal, I mean, so many things that can cause disruption when we clear that up, it's, it's powerful. It's a powerful change, a powerful healing, a healthy nature. And uh, obviously you radiate that you radiate that. So you are in, you know, you are doing everything right. And it just makes me so curious though, because I think, you know, what it's, it's happening to so many people and, um, and there are, you know, there are different, different ways we need to approach it. There are many different avenues we have to go down to restore that hormonal balance. And it's never just in a pill or a surgery. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot more. And certainly you mentioned the adrenals, the adrenal glands are so crucial to the entire hormonal neuroendocrine system. And when we are stressed, perceived or real stress, right, perceived or real, we um, get into this, this high, you know, this high cortisol state, which causes high inflammation in our body. And that is never a time for reproductive hormones. So it's, it's just so fascinating to me. And I continue to learn and be a student of this. And, you know, I will say, you know, I, I've definitely been humbled in my journey as a physician. <laughs> and I wish no physician the journey I've been on to know what I know. Well, and that's the thing. I think it's, we're always learning, right? I mean, it's not just about um, what you've learned already. And, and mm -hmm. you know, things, you're always learning. That's why science is changing, because we learn new things every single day. And as a, I love having, you know, the physicians I go to are always open to this. They're open to this change. They're open to learning new things. Um, I mean, my husband's a prime example. He was his, a lot of his family has high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and he was put on medication as a young adult. And after we had our second child, his medication just wasn't working anymore. And he had to go see a new cardiologist because we had moved And this new cardiologist basically said like, Hey, look, I can just give you your meds, um, up them, find a new bed, a med, or I have found that I've uh, that a lot of success in treating a lot of my heart patients through dietary changes. And if you're interested, let me know. And my husband basically was like, I feel like crap. I'm interested. And he, that is when we started a plant-based journey actually. And so, um, 
he just said, like, there's some people who cannot process animal products and it affects their heart. And that's, so that's what we did. We started changing to a plant rich diet. Um, we're not hundred percent anything. I personally do not live a black and white life because of my own, you know, mental health and adrenal issues and whatever. I, I don't like black and whites. It gives me stress and stress does not do well with me. Um, right. But we're very, we're very plant rich, but within three months, my husband was off all his medication, has not been on medication since, and this was um, 10 years ago. Um, he lost weight just naturally because we cut uh, out a lot of like high saturated fat foods. Um, weight was not his goal, but it was a byproduct. Um, but he, to this day, is off all of his meds. And he was told by so many doctors, here's your pill. It's hereditary. There's nothing you can do about it. Yep. Yep. That's so true. Oh, bravo, bravo, bravo for him and bravo for bringing your whole family along with you on your journey. I remember when I was graduating Emory, my residency program, a fellow resident, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, you got to stay current with everything. He said, you know, Anna, you can practice just like we're practicing now for the next 20 years and still be practicing, you know, the leading edge in standard medical care. And I was like, whoa. And within a few years of my own life journey and my own medical practice, I'd learned, I'd learned so much. And it's very interesting because when I went back to give grand rounds at Emory 10 years later, a decade later, I was, you know, teaching about bioidentical progesterone and, you know, inflama addressing inflammation to get hormones balanced. And I, it was like, I was speaking a foreign language. They were still doing exactly what they trained me to do. And I thought, I thought, hmm, we, I just, that really makes me passionate about getting this information out. Food is medicine. The ancient physicians were the chefs to the king. We can trace it back to the Ottoman Empire. I mean, the king was, you know, the chef was prepared. The physician was the chef. He prepared the food for the king. And the origin of the word physician is for educator, teacher, right? We're to empower the individual where to empower others to be the in charge of their health, to be the CEO of their body. And somewhere along the way, we've lost that where in clinical training, and I'm not bashing, I mean, I do, I, I don't discriminate, I want to know everything I can know. But the in clinical training, there's this propensity to decrease your own clinical judgment, like your clinical opinion doesn't matter, what is the uh, research say, well, research based on who funded by who yes. and it really is a problem. And physicians need to trust their clinical uh, intuition and their clinical acumen, and they need to learn it. And it's, it's, it's definitely, um, it's, it's definitely, um, I don't want to say a lost art, but I will give you the example because as a medical student, I um, helped develop the first international medical student exchange for the osteopathic medical schools in Egypt. And so for the U.S. to go to Egypt for a physician exchange. And so I was in Alexandria, Egypt for a summer. And the physicians there that I, I sat in clinic where there were lines, like hundreds of people in line to just come see the doctors. And the physicians would by sight say, oh, this one has schistosomiasis, this one has hepatic disease, this one has some paras other parasite, this one has, 
you know, you can see the hypertension, look at the ankles, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, whoa, I'd never learned that, you know, and it was fascinating to me to see. And they said, we, we can't carry around a textbook. We can't order labs. No, they can't afford it. And, and as our country yes. can't afford it. So we have to trust our, our, our eyes, our nose, our touch. We have to trust what we're, you know, where we're, um, how we're treating our patients. So how we're well, and also, also like, that's such a good point because if you think about, you know, people that, um, like, cause the brain is, is fa- always been fascinating to me. That's why my previous career, I actually am a teacher, um, by trade. I have a master's degree in education and I taught special education for the first half of my career, which my fascination, I was pre-med in college, but my fascination with the brain and how it works and how it learns was really kind of what took me into special education. Um, but the thing is like when someone who has sight loses their sight, the part of their brain, they learn to use their other senses. Like the, their brain actually gets stronger in order to compensate for that. And so that's such a good point that when you're, comp- when you're relying on just a textbook or, or something, you're not allowing all the other senses you have, all the other parts of your brain to kind of work. And like you said, they were able to see things that a lot of people just, a lot of, you know, physicians just don't see. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I feel like that sounds, you know, like very, a similar concept that, you know, the more you can pay attention to the little things that, you know, others might miss. Absolutely. And this is where menopause has gotten a a bad rap too. You know, the terminology is terrible you know, like, for example, for you and me, I, you know, what is it early menopause? Is it just, you know, what exactly, you know, how do we qualify that? And what does that mean? And, you know, when you go a year without a period, like I did, and start resuming normal periods again, what does that mean? <laughs> Are you postmenopausal menstrual? <laughs> I mean, there's just terrible terminology around this. And, and so we've got to look at it a different way. And one of the beautiful things that I've learned in, in my travels is, for instance, it's it's really perceived the second half, you know, the second stage of life. So we have different stages. I like, you know, menopause is no different in a transition. It's the opposite end of the spectrum of puberty, and it's no more a disease process. In uh, in Japan, they don't have a word for menopause. They just say konenki, which means second spring. And I, and I love that concept. I love the second spring. We are in the second spring of our life <laughs> and we need to like thrive in it, right? Mental clarity, energy, you know, and I just had my first grandbaby. So it's like, okay, I want, um, my life as a grandparent to look very different than my mom's life as a grandparent dying at 67, diabetic, two heart surgeries, 11 prescription medications, no two of which had ever been studied together, let alone in a female. Yeah, that's crazy. And not to uh, give TMI, but I actually just had um, my annual with my um, OBGYN last last week. Um, And, you know, being postmenopausal now, she asked me all the questions and that she has to ask me. And she, she gave me like five stars on I, all my parts looked wonderful and were plump and were, there's no vaginal dryness. There's like, she's like, you're just like thriving. And I'm like, I really am. I don't have any issues. And yeah, I, I don't have periods anymore. And my functional medicine doc asked if she, if I wanted her to like restart them. I was like, no, I have no desire. Um, but I feel great. Like I'm in excellent shape. I feel, I just feel great. So it's that's like you just said, like everyone hears about menopause and how terrible it is. 
And I just don't think it has to be that way. Right, right. It's like there's a transition period, but even the transition can be smooth sailing. Now, one thing I would do, like I, you know, would make sure that you had a pelvic ultrasound, looked at the uterus, looked at the ovaries, a, um, they are benign, they're painless, you know, and it's good information. And um, I think that's just worth looking into, especially, you know, you're not showing signs of hormonal insufficiency. So let's just look, let's just look and make sure everything is good too. That's, that's the GYN. That's the gynecologist in me. Plus, you know, I used to ultrasound all my own patients and I think it's really important to look at uterus and ovaries and, and, you know, even though it may not be indicated medically, it's good, it's good information to have. So I think that's one of the things with, um, there is so much that we have to be able to do to look and, um, and assess, assess a patient with, and ultimately empower that patient. And this is the one thing that's gotten so much misinformation. I actually did an IG live on this just now, because I was um, researching some things and I came across the, like this, you know, hey, this is the best diet for menopause. I was like, so excited. I'm like, oh, good. Let's see what they're saying. I'm sure, you know, they're along the same lines as me. And the first thing they had was like, oh yes, granola with fruit and yogurt for breakfast. I'm like, okay, well, there goes, that's like a hundred grams of carbs, at least in that meal, going to have a high blood sugar. And then there's snacks and, you know, it was, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was like, okay, well, this is not how to eat for menopause because menopause is a risk factor for diabetes. We become more insulin resistant in menopause. So carbs are, need to be restricted, really do need to be restricted in menopause as well. Well, you know, what's interesting. Um, one thing I forgot to, to tell you is what's, so I, I've always known that dairy kind of has bothered me a little bit. Um, just ever since I was probably like in high school, I realized that. Um, but I, in, when I was in college, I started getting adult onset, um, seasonal allergies and I did like all the things I did allergy shots and that kind of helped a little bit, but I was always on meds for them. And when I started with my functional medicine doc, she actually said gluten came up and I'm like, interesting. So I, she took me off gluten and three months later, my allergies went away. Not amazing. Mm-hmm. Like gone. I've never, mm-hmm. I mean, I was like, holy moly. Like, I, and it's crazy. Cause in the past I've had to do like allergy testing every, like my allergist always wanted to do them. And to do allergy testing, you have to go off all of your medication. And it was the worst two weeks of my life. Cause I could barely breathe. I could, I've been off my, and I, I haven't taken anything for since, I mean, long time. I mean, it was a shocker to me. I was like, wow. And I feel so much better. I definitely had gluten issues, which I don't know if it was, you know, the menopause that brought it on, or if I've always had a little sensitivity, I don't know. But the bottom line is I, it was crazy. Like that, that dramatic difference. It is so true. And for me, it was, we have so many similarities. Um, for me, it was, I used to have like, as a child, I even had chronic ear infections and I had six myringotomies, six ear surgeries as a child. And it wasn't until you learned, you figured it out quicker than I did, but it wasn't until probably my thirties when I recognized that, okay, dairy is really bad for me. And that was, I mean, dairy was a huge thing. And so my, all my recipes are gluten-free, dairy-free. They just are. And except for the, in menu pause, my new book coming out, it has um, 
five, six day plans. And one of them is a carb up plan. So there we have some healthy grains and root vegetables with, you know, healthier carbs, because sometimes we just need to carb up. And so, um, but in, in general, they're all dairy free, grain free recipes, because it, it can affect your immune system. It can be the reason that some women struggle more with menopause than others. And it's, I mean, that was, it's so important to pay attention to like what you're eating, what your body's saying. Um, I wanted to back up for just a second for these, for people listening that um, are new to the idea of what menopause is. Um, I always get excited to talk about these subjects and I forget to lay the building blocks sometimes for people. (laughs) So can you uh, explain to people what exactly, like, what does menopause mean? What it is? Um, like, I know that there, you know, the symptoms, I know that there's stages of menopause that I went through that when I was going through it, I had no idea. Um, share with us some of this, uh, like basic building block information. Yeah, absolutely. So menopause, the word menopause is defined as the day 12 months from your last period, the day 12 months from your last period. And then beyond that, it's postmenopause. And before that, there's perimenopause or premenopause. So, and we typically say you have perimenopausal symptoms, meaning you're not quite in menopause, but you've got all the symptoms we discussed, like hot flashes, weight gain without doing anything different, um, sleep disturbances, insomnia, you know, irregular, of course, there's the irregular menstrual, you know, regular menstrual cycles leading up to menopause or breakthrough bleeding and some of those symptoms also. But then there's the anxiety and the depression and the mood swings. And I always tell my clients, if you only hate your husband two weeks out of the month, that's your hormones and not your husband, right? Physiology affects behavior. Yes. Menopause is a time of neuroendocrine vulnerability. This peri, this time before menopause, starting from 35 to 55, according to MRIs of the brain, where we can see a decrease in glucose uh, uptake, glucose utilization or glucose um, in the brain, it's because there's a hormone dependency to the body's ability or the brain's ability to make glucose. Gluconeogenesis is estrogen dependent, probably most likely progesterone, um, you know, because progesterone will start to plummet in our mid thirties and that, and forties. And that leads up to this more, you know, regular menstrual cycles, but progesterone is a neuroprotective hormone. It's not just for the uterus, it's for the brain, it's for the bones, and it's important with or without a uterus. And I think that's still missed by so many physicians. So with menopause, you know, it, you have that pre-menopause, like, okay, you're not symptomatic, you're, you know, not near perimenopause is that symptomatic time period. Menopause is the day 12 months after your last menstrual period. And then postmenopause is beyond that. Now, what happens when you've had a hysterectomy? Are you in menopause, not menopause? What's going on? So hence our terminology has a lot to be desired. <laughs> and it yes. can, yeah, and it can, you know, the perimenopausal time period, I've seen it last five to 15 years. Yes. Isn't that's the craziest part about it. Right. (laughs) Um, they say perimenopause can last. I mean, that's what they say. They just don't know. And that's the thing for me is because I had, uh, my third baby was a surprise baby. (laughs) Well, my second and third were both surprises. My first, obviously we worked really hard to have. And my second one, um, was a byproduct of my first. We of course had gone through all this fertility. It was my third IVF cycle, I had really bad secondary complications. And so I was just like done. Um, And then we went for a fourth after, you know, I said, and we're successful, but I wasn't going to go through that again. So 
you know, and of course you're not using protection when you've gone through fertility. And when right. I was two when I was three months postpartum, I found out I was pregnant. So it was crazy. And so I was done. I was more beyond thrilled. Um, and I had gotten to know my body so well that we were, you know, we were careful. Um, but I was, I, I knew my body. I knew when I was ovulating, I knew whatever. And, um, the third baby happened because of one night and basically my doc, my OBGYN was like, well, if, if you are saying, you know, your body as well as you do, and you can feel yourself ovulate and you knew when you ovulated, then your husband's sperm lived a week longer than it should have. And I'm like, well, maybe he had super sperm. I don't know, but let me tell you <laughs> that she's a hundred percent right because my third child is a firecracker. So I am a hundred percent sure that he was born from a super sperm. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes. <sighs> but, and that's the thing. It's like, I was pregnant. So I got, I, it was so fast and furious after that. It makes me wonder, you know, if I was in Perry, I just didn't know it. And then I happened to get pregnant. I don't know. It was crazy. It's interesting because one of the things through my own journey, early menopause and reversing it, and then, um, and then again, um, so I, I, as patients came in, once I knew what I knew about you know, really getting to address the underlying issues and using food as medicine and when patients and functional medicine training and age management medicine training, all these things that I've been in, when I had a patient come in and this is, this is typical, you know, way that I would take care of her is that whatever her symptoms are, I would draw, you know, draw lab work and put her on a modified elimination diet, an earlier version of my keto green plan and say, okay, we're going to reevaluate in six weeks. We're going to go over your lab results in six weeks, do this in the meantime. And you know, maybe I would give them some adrenal support, like Mighty Maca Plus. Maybe I would give them some progesterone if they needed it. And so, and they come back in six weeks and then come back and every one of them, Dr. Anna, I feel so much better. <laughs> Dr. Anna, my symptoms are gone. Like I've not felt this good in so long. And I have one client named Zendi and she's a mom of four and uh, was the bookkeeper for her husband's business. And she goes, you know, Dr. Anna brings me to tears with my little daughter, Sophie, and maybe that's why I'm remembering her. Her name was Sophie. Mm -hmm. She said she crawled up to, into my lap and she said, mommy, you're smiling again. I mean, it's, it's good stuff, but standard medical practices, you come in, you're having a regular cycle. So we give you a birth control pill. You come back, you're having anxiety, depression issues, and we give you an anti-anxiety medication and say, stay on the birth control pill. Then you come back and you're saying, well, I'm having breakthrough bleeding. I don't like how I feel. Okay. So let's take out your uterus. So you don't have to have the birth control pill <laughs> or let's address those problems. Right. Yeah. And, and then you come back and, and your gynecologist, your physician's like, well, I've done everything I can. Here's, um, here's a referral to psychiatry and you'll need this. Here's a referral to a divorce attorney. You know, I mean, it's just terrible the way it happens and this disconnect and it's disruption. And we've never addressed the underlying issue. And I've done many hysterectomies in my, in my life. And I will tell you that once I learned this way of practice and using, getting to the underlying physiologic issues that are causing the problem with the uterus or otherwise, I went from doing two to three surgeries a week to need to do one to two major surgeries per year. 
That's the difference. That's how the I body heal it. itself. And, and it's powerful. And now we know, which I think is really fascinating research that looked at women who have had, um, have gone through menopause and menopause is a risk factor for diabetes. So the question was, well, what if they've had their uterus removed and their ovaries remained? And then what if they had their ovaries removed too? Well, the research has shown that, you know, of course, menopause, a natural increasing risk factor, but above that significantly increased risk for diabetes. If you've had your uterus removed and even substantial more significant risk for diabetes, if you've had your ovaries removed, isn't that fascinating when it could have been a underlying glycemic issue, right? Stress, cortisol, adrenals, the entire HPA axis was never addressed before or after hysterectomy. So those risk factors remain. And then we know women who have had ovaries removed have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and um, stroke. That um, That's crazy. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is underlying, like what is happening in there? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I was on birth control for a long time. And so, it, you know, that makes me wonder, um, it just now, you know, obviously whatever it is, what it is, I feel great. I'm not, you know, going to dig into it, but, um, it is important to think about what, cause I don't have any family history of any issues. Like my sister got pregnant, you know, no problem, never had any issues. My mom didn't have any issues. Um, so it's like, there has to have been something unique with me that caused the fertility, the early onset menopause, like I, I always, I just wonder, I always have wondered um, about that kind of stuff because I see if there's like a ham- family history of recurrent miscarriages or mm-hmm. I don't know, it just, it always, um, I was always the black sheep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, I like your rebel nature because you didn't give up. You didn't lose hope. You kept digging for answers and you kept investing in yourself and your journey and just knowing, look, I, I want to feel better. And I think now as a mom and a new grandmom that I am right now, it's like, I want to feel amazing for the rest of my life. I want to watch this, you know, I didn't know my grandparents. So I want to watch this grandbaby, you know, if I have more excellent, you know, this amazing grandbaby, I want to live healthy quality of life to enjoy her too. And I think that that's a really powerful thing. The, you, we both turned our lives around. And I would say that everyone here can do the same thing. It doesn't matter what you were diagnosed with. We can be healthier tomorrow than we are today. And it's, you know, 99% in our control. I'm still keeping that 1% for me as a physician to write a prescription of some kind. So um, it is 99% in each of our controls. And what more important do you have than your own health, like your mental health, your physical health, like life is so short. Don't you want to feel good every day? I mean, and, and that's the thing is like, I want to, I have three boys and I want my boys to know that, um, not only for them, but for the women one day in their life, that it's so important to put your mental and physical health first. And they know, like when they see me working out, they know not to bother me. I mean, I'm not going to say that they don't ever, because there's been times that I've been in trying to do my yoga and I had to stop and like lose it. But you know what? (laughs) They know, they know that my exercise is so important. They see it every day that, you know, me making nutritious food. And we talk so much about, um, about food because I I also am big on food relationships. And so I do, I don't control what they eat. Um, I do allow them to make their own decisions, but we just talk about it. So it's like, you know, we talk about, Hey, you know, it's important for your body when you come home and you, and you pick a snack after school that 
I, you know, like to talk about get something fresh from the fridge and then something from the pantry, but sitting there and eating a giant bowl of pretzels isn't going to do much for you. You know, pair them with a hummus, pair them with, you know, you want that apple. Great. Grab some peanut butter too. Like we talk a lot about that kind of stuff. Um, and I do allow them to, you know, make their own choices because sometimes they've made choices that have led to belly aches. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you think you have a belly ache? Cause you ate three servings of that frozen yogurt with your friend today. Mm, probably, mm-hmm. you know, and because it's, we're not going to be around forever. They need to learn this kind of stuff. Um, I'm just, I've never been the mom that's like, oh, no way. I'm not letting my kid eat that. That's poison. I'm like, well, I also think that allowing them to learn to make choices is also a really important skill for them to have for their future. Um, I agree with you because we don't want to, we want them to come to it on their own terms in a way. But again, what we have, like, I think like what we're cooking at home or when we're eating out, I've got some control. And then what she's doing, you know, when she's at school or on the ranch, you know, or at a rodeo or whatever she is, I mean, she has her choices. And then that is, okay, well, how are you feeling? Hmm, you've got a little break out there. What do you think that's from? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. opportunities. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. I mean, I, I'm the one that makes all the meals at home and my, my rules too, awesome. I'm not a restaurant. So uh, what's for dinner is what for dinner. You don't like it. Mm, you're either going to bed hungry or you're getting your butt up and making yourself a snack. I don't know what to tell you, but I'm done cooking. I've spent my time and this is dinner. And I also, you know, need them to know that like, they're not going to get everything they love every single day. I mean, we have five people in our family and just cause you like tacos and want to eat them every day. Sometimes other people want pasta, which my number three doesn't love pasta, which is insane to me, but he's a child <laughs> and he's so weird. Um, but that's kind of, you know, it's, it's important, you know, for them to understand that as well. Um, exactly. Speaking of diet, I wanted to talk a little bit more about you. You've been talked a little bit about, you know, menopause, increased risk for things like diabetes. Can we talk about diet menopause? You know, what are the things that you have seen um, help? And what are the things that you've seen hurt um, tips that you'd have for those kinds of things? Yes, absolutely. And I found this through my own journey too. So I call like the best diet for menopausal woman is keto green. And so in other words, we're eliminating sugar. We're having a lot of dark green leafies and low carbohydrate greens and plant foods, spices, herbs, sprouts. I mean, use them. They're so medicinal. They help with estrogen detoxification and help support a gut microbiome. That's, that's important for resilience and immune system and hormone balance. So, so it's the greens and the alkalinizers are so key and then healthy fats and high quality protein. And I, that makes a really big difference. In the 80s, when I was in high school and college, it was all the low fat movement that has created a, a generation of women with dis- destroyed hormones as a result of that. But look, we can we turn that around by adding fats back and taking out sugar. It's the reverse way we were taught in the 80s. And that makes a really big difference. And it's not just about eating keto green, eating healthy, high quality fat, like for example, smoked salmon on a bed of arugula with some red onion, sliced capers, tomatoes, and drizzled with olive oil, maybe add some sesame seed or something like that. And some ginger, if you want to add a fermented food. So, and that's a keto green meal right there. And so adding healthy fats and low carbs is going to keep us from having cravings and having to even fight a, a, for a willpower 
willpower is physiologic. And so ups and downs in blood sugar create cravings. And so we really want to stabilize that blood sugar. That's key. And then intermittent fasting and no more snacking. The menopausal woman thrives with two or three meals a day, you know, one to three meals a day just depends on many factors, but typically I find two to three meals a day and, um, intermittent fasting and no more snacking and finish your, you know, finish eating by six or seven o'clock at the latest. What's um, interesting too, is that, you know, I totally remember the low fat snack wells. Remember those? (laughs) Oh Oh my gosh. I mean, it's so funny because I totally remember those. And I, I didn't grow up dieting or anything like that. I mean, I'm a petite woman by just by nature and I'm lucky in, in that sense. Um, But I just love the flavor of you know, I loved eating certain things. And I, I remember thinking to myself, these low fat things, like, gosh, I'm not so satiated in any way whatsoever. Well, yeah, that's because they took the fat out and they added all the sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing with healthy fats too, that's like, you know, I talked to my boys a lot about that, about, you know, protein, healthy fats, like you need those kinds of things to feel satisfied. Like if you're eating, you know, things that if you're not eating that in your diet, like you're just, you're always going to be eating, looking for that satisfaction. Yep. Absolutely. You have cravings. Yep. You're not satisfied. And, um, and that is, yeah, that is so true. And we need the fiber and a lot of many of these diets aren't allowing us enough fiber. And one thing that all longevity um, cultures, cultures with high longevity or blue zones and, you know, and high people with high immune systems all have um, a high amount of plant-based foods in their diet, unadulterated plant-based foods. So ideally non-GMO, no pesticides, herbicides, all of that stuff. That does make a difference. And um, yes, the fiber, I actually, I had a pediatrician on once and she she gave me a stat that blew my mind um, because our country is so obsessed with protein. And she's like, yeah, so um, I think it was like 96% of our country does not have a protein problem, but, but 96% of our country has a fiber issue. And that is just crazy to me. And I believe it though, because my children, when they were in preschool, my two boys, my two older boys, when they were in preschool, they're a year apart. And so they went to preschool together. I remember their teacher, their preschool teacher kind of pulling me outside when I went to pick them up one day. And she goes, you know, I think they might have like a little bug or something because they have like loose stools. And I'm, I kind of looked at her. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, they're fine. They don't have a bug. She's like, yeah, well, they, they pooped like twice already today and they, their stools are kind of loose. And I'm like, that's normal. That's like how they always have. And I'm like, the problem isn't my kids. The problem is the rest of the kids here that they don't eat all the foods my kids do. So they're just constipated. And that's terrible. When the worst things that is a red flag for disease constipation is you're so right. You know, as babies, we have this new grandbaby. So my daughter was like, every time she eats, she poos. I'm like, that is perfect. That's that normal. normal. <laughs> right. Wait till she has a moment. She's hundred percent breastfed. I'm going to wait till you switch at some point to give her food. You'll know when she's constipated. We don't want yeah. that to happen. Right. Oh, it was, it was crazy. Um, so those are all the great things. What are the things that you have found that make menopause worse and why the, you know, I'm guessing the symptoms, like, and why do you, do you see that? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's certainly sugar. It's certainly snacking. It's certainly, um, you know, the, the higher glycemic food choices and, and healthy, choo- 
healthy foods can affect us adversely. And I think that's something really important to understand. Again, menopause, as through menopause, we're becoming more insulin resistant, in other words, higher risk for diabetes. And so we have to break that down. So also gluten, dairy, they're not in any of my recipes. We do gluten-free, dairy-free, mostly grain-free and dairy-free. And um, so those are things that definitely can make it, make it worse. And anything that's processed um, is another problem because it creates hormone disruption, uh, you know, endocrine disruptors. They even like we can be eating a keto meal, but if that say if we're eating some sausage and that animal was injected with antibiotics, with steroids, you know, eating GMO corn, whatever it may be. I mean, we're absorbing that. I mean, that's going somewhere. So the quality of our food um, can make, you know, menopause worse too. Quality for sure. Um, Awesome. And as far as, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, like you talked about, you know, treatments, obviously, you know, your diet, look at, you know, what you're eating. Um, But what else would you, other than, you know, looking at diet, what are some things that you do with your patients um, to help them get through menopause? So from the time of perimenopause and beyond, we want to support our body's natural production of progesterone. So anything we do to decrease cortisol, increase oxytocin, support the adrenal glands is going to help with progesterone levels. So the, you know, activities like gratitude journaling, lifestyle hacks, getting out in nature, making sure you're getting good night's sleep, those lifestyle factors are really, really critical. And then I'll supplement with Uh, my superfood formula, Mighty Maca Plus, it's maca, which is a a root from Peru, and 30 other superfoods that have been shown to increase um, our natural DHEA production by 70 to 200%. So we've seen great improvements with that and progesterone levels that have improved. And then I would use a bioidentical progesterone, I typically use a topical progesterone cream called balance cream, and it has progesterone in it. And I like that from, you know, perimenopause and beyond, Uh, you know, if we need it, and well, definitely menopause and beyond, I think we all need it, I will be taking it most likely till I die. And I have many clients um, that have taken it well through for, for decades now. So bioidentical progesterone helps you get a good night's sleep and helps you um, helps the brain helps bone. And when I started using it in my clients without a uterus and perimenopause and, and who were postmenopausal and they may have had a hysterectomy, their ovaries removed years before. And I started using progesterone to help them with their symptoms. They were still struggling, difficulty sleeping, feeling tired, memory loss. So I started using progesterone with them and they would come back for their follow-up visit. And every single one would say, Dr. Anna, I feel like a cloud has lifted. I feel like a cloud has lifted. I didn't know really even how bad I was feeling till I started feeling good again. And that's the power of bioidentical progesterone. So I am an advocate for that. Your physician, there's, you know, my formula is balanced formula and physicians can prescribe you uh, a bioidentical oral progesterone and or a compounded um, topical progesterone as well are ways that you can do that. I love it. Um, Other than progesterone, anything else we're looking at hormone wise? Yeah, I typically start with progesterone and DHEA, the DHEA from the adrenal glands. And I use that um, 
you know, in, in women for sexual health, for energy, for, for, you know, look at their levels. I want to support their body's natural production of DHEA. So that's through all our, you know, adrenal adaptogen protocols and, and, um, diet lifestyle. That's really going to help. And I use, um, DHEA, then I would use testosterone and estrogen. So all like these key hormones are really important. And as a gynecologist, I've spent a lot of years of my life studying them and the pathways, but when it comes down to it, when we really need hormone balance, we have to become more insulin sensitive. We have to address insulin. So hence the ketogenic part, and we have to get you know, address cortisol. We can't let cortisol stress rule our lives. So it's, you know, learning the practices to be present in the moment and mindful will help that. And that manages cortisol. And then I always say, you know, we have to empower the most powerful hormone in our body, oxytocin. Oxytocin is that hormone of love, bonding, and connection. It's the most alkalinizing hormone of our body. And it's the hormone that enables us to experience joy and laughter and love and connection. And so it is a longevity hormone. So that's part of my, you know, these are the hormones that I address um, foundationally for my menopausal patients. I love it. I love it. So much great information here. Well, thank you so much for just giving us all this amazing information just about menopause and just in general, um, just so many tidbits for, for everyone listening. I love it. I just really appreciate you being here. My pleasure, Sophia. Thank you for having me. And for all of you listening, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I so appreciate all of you. If you love what you hear, please make sure to do a rate and review on the Purple Podcast app because the more I have, the more I can get incredible people on like Dr. Anna here. And um, love you guys. And we'll chat soon. 